The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Well, there are fewer greater joys in life, and certainly every parent remembers this if they have children, of the first time you bring your child home. That first time. Now, it's always special anytime you bring any of your kids home, but especially that first kid, because this is all brand new to you as a parent, and you're realizing they don't come with an instruction manual, and there's no returning this child. As you put them in their car, and you get everything going, and you pull out into the road, and if you were like me, suddenly for the first time, you realize like all these obstacles, you're like, they are out to get me. Do they not know I have a child in my back seat? Why are you driving so fast? What is going on? Slow down, everyone. And then you pull out into the highway and it's the slowest you've ever driven. Let me put it this way. When I took our kids home from the hospital, I did not drive like how I drove on Highway 5 yesterday. We'll put it that way. Is you're being very careful, being, being very cautious, because there's this amazing new thing about having a new addition into your family, having a new child. And for some people, bringing their child home looked a little different than how I brought my two kids home, but it is just as beautiful because for some, bringing your kids home for the first time was through a process called adoption. And there's many different ways that adoption works and looks in our world today. I've known families that it's been through the foster care system. And you've had a child that has lived with you sometimes for months, years at a time, but has been someone else's child until finally, after all the things went through, it was approved, everything was done, and then you bring your child home, and that day they are your child. It's now you're watching someone else's, but it is, it is your child who now is a part of your family. For others, maybe it was a local adoption, and the phone call came that a baby's been born and it's yours, and you get to go to the hospital, and you get your son, you get your daughter. I've known many who have done international adoptions, and all of the travel and paperwork and expense that comes with it, and the, the joy and anticipation for those, those parents of flying somewhere overseas, meeting their child, packing them up on the airplane with them, flying home with their child. It's a beautiful picture, and it's a beautiful image that we see in Scripture to describe our relationship with God being adopted into his family once we are saved. We're going through this series looking at different aspects of salvation, and I want to propose to you that understanding adoption into the family of God is one of the fundamental and most crucial things to understanding your salvation if you are a follower of Jesus. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, puts it this way. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity, of what it means to be saved, cannot be better than our grasp of what it means that we are adopted into the family of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at three significant changes that happen to us and are given to us now that we are adopted into the family of God. And the first is this, that because we're adopted in the family of God, what it means for us is this, is that you are chosen by God. That if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you 
are chosen by God. He set his sights on and chose you to be a part of his family. It says this in Ephesians chapter one, starting at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be adopted as sons and his daughters through Jesus. See, sometimes in our cultural context, adoption is often thought of for families as a backup plan. It's as if biological, if you can't have biological children, then adoption is the way to go about having children. And we associate it often, not, certainly not always, but often with that. But that's our cultural mindset when we think of it. When we reverse back and look at the biblical mindset, we see actually something a little different coming through with adoption. Now, it's interesting that when this metaphor of adopting into God's family is used in the Bible, it's only used to, in letters written to Roman audiences. It's used here in Ephesians, and we're gonna look at the other references today in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians as well. Because Romans had this idea in their culture of what adoption was, and the Apostle Paul is leaning into that to help illustrate what it looks like now that as children of God, we are adopted into his family. See, when we think of adoption, in our world now, we primarily think of adopting children. Very young children, typically, are adopted and brought into a family and raised by parents. But in a Roman context, what was often adopted is, yes, sometimes children, but far more common, adoption was actually adults. Adults were adopted into someone's family because back then, all businesses and houses and agriculture and things were run through family businesses and you would adopt someone into your family as an adult because they would then be the heir and carry on the family business, the family lineage to go down the line. And so not just to name a successor, but you would actually adopt them and so they would become a true part of your family, a rightful son or daughter into your household to have the privileges of now representing and leading your family business later on after you had retired or passed away. In fact, this was so common for them that when Paul writes this letter for generations, Roman Caesars, the rulers over Rome, had been passed down not through biological children, but through children that Caesars had adopted. And so they would find other men back then who were adults and say, this is who I want to run Rome after I die. And they would adopt them into their family and then they would be the next Caesar afterwards. See, adoption in their mindset and in certainly in the biblical mindset, adoption is about being wanted. It's about being seen as valued by someone else so much, not just as someone young and who knows what they'll be like, but full knowing what they are, who they are, adopting them and wanting them to be a part of the family. See, God does not merely tolerate you. God does not merely put up with you. God wants you. God chooses you. You are God's plan A. Not his plan B or C or D. You're not his backup plan. You are God's plan A. Look again at verse four in Ephesians one. Even as he chose us in him, when before the foundation of the world. 
Before God spoke the world and the universe into existence, before the first man was made, before sin entered the world, before any of these things happened, God has his heart set on you and chose you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be a child of God. A powerful image as I was thinking of this, of, of someone setting their heart for so long for someone else, was I was reminded of a, of a story from many years ago from a couple I knew who were in the process of international adoption. And they had been looking and going through all of the processes, and it's a, long, it's a long process, lots of paperwork, lots of expenses, until they finally got, got the contact from their agency overseas. They were doing it overseas and said, hey, we have your son. We have your son. And so they, out of joy, quickly bought the tickets. They went overseas. They were there to be scheduled for a week. And they knew, all right, we're gonna go. We're gonna fill out the rest of the paperwork. We're gonna get our son and we're gonna come back home. And when they showed up in that country, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. There was lost paperwork. They were saying the funds were insufficient. You have to pay more. They were saying you actually don't have the rights. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And I remember as they were here recounting the story to me, telling me about this, I remember what the dad said. He said at some point, he just stopped and said to them, listen, I don't care what happens. I'm not leaving here without my son. I don't care what happens. I'm not leaving here until my son is with me. See, his heart was set on him. And he, wasn't, he would do whatever it took, how long it took, no matter what it took, to have him to be a part of his family. That's how God looks at you. In love, he looked at you and said, whatever it takes, which by the way, what did it take? It took the cross. It took his son dying for you, to save you, to be a part of the family of God. But he said, whatever it takes, I choose them to be a part of my family. God wants you. He has chosen you from eternity past. That's a significant fact, a significant thing about us. Another incredible privilege of being now adopted into the family of God is this. Secondly, that because you're a part of the family of God, you have full access to God. Because you've been adopted into the family of God, you have full access to God the Father. Romans 8 says this in verses 14 through 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That, that language of crying, Abba, Father, is, is prayer language, that we can approach God with anything and everything in our hearts. And there's been a lot of discussion and dialogue over the years on, on what this term means, Abba, Father. Abba is just the literal word rendering staying the same, because it's hard to find an English equivalent to it. And sometimes it's a, it's a phrase, Abba, that, excuse me, that conveys affection and intimacy and closeness of relationship. And because of that, sometimes people try and translate it. Well, it's, it's like saying, Daddy, Father. The problem is, in our, in our cultural context, Daddy is a word that kids use to refer to their parents, right? It's not a word that adults use. I hate to bring it to you. I was back, back with my family this week. When I got to my parents' house, I didn't run up and go, Daddy, that would have been weird. Right? I said, hey, dad, and gave him a hug, right? But, but so, so the, the, it's this term that isn't like daddy, right? So, so we don't need to pray to daddy God. First, that's weird, so don't do it. But second, it's not really accurate because that's childlike. 
But Abba, calling God Abba Father is not like a little kid should do it, but even as, as adults, as we grow and mature in our faith, that we still have this closeness, this intimacy that God wants to hear from us, that we have access to him unlike anyone else in the world because you're his kid. He wants to hear from you. So what characterizes praying to God in this way? What, what does it mean that we can cry out to God as our Abba Father? Well, I think there's two, two large concepts that are conveyed when we pray with this kind, of, this, this kind of relationship with this intimacy with God as our Father. First is this, is that it conveys deep trust in God. Praying to God as your Abba Father conveys deep trust in Him. Just like as a child has this blind, childlike faith and trust in their parents, that they trust their parents no matter what, that's this kind of trust and dependency and faith that we are called to have on God. That whatever we have, we trust in him, we trust in his plan, we trust in his goodness, we trust in his heart for us. Man, it's amazing, as I have two little kids at home, how much, especially little kids, trust their mom and dad. Right now, I'm still in the stage of parenting where mom and dad are the two coolest people in the world. I know that will quickly pass in a few years, but I'm loving this stage because mom and dad are the coolest people in the world. And my, my daughter, both of them, and I, we see it especially in my oldest, who's a little over three and a half, and how much she trusts mom and dad with everything. There's this thing that she learned this last summer at swim class that she's now continued throughout the year. And at swim class, as we were in it this last summer, it was fun, they teach the toddlers, you stand on the edge of the pool and you learn to jump into the pool. And what happens when you jump into the pool? Mom and dad will catch you, right? Now my daughter has thought, this is a fun thing to continue to practice at home every time I stand at the top of the stairs. <laughs> this is a lot like the pool. So she will go to the edge of the stairs and she will fall. Does she announce she's falling? She does not announce she's falling. Does she look to see if you have the baby in the other hand? She does not look, nor does she care. Or you have your hands full? She doesn't care. She falls. Why? Because when she falls, what always happens? Mom or dad always catch her. No matter if we're dropping or fumbling other things or how awkward it looks. Like we, she has this trust that, hey, I, I'm just going to lean on you and you will have me. That's that kind of faith that we are called to have on in God that we lean on him and he will always catch us. He has our back no matter what. That childlike but a beautiful faith that we can trust in his goodness and his plan for us. So when we pray to God as our Abba Father, we're conveying that we trust in him. The second thing that, that is truly conveyed in this, this phrase, Abba Father, as we pray, is this idea that we can come to God in our desperation. That in our desperate, in our lowest moments, that we can and should come to God. When it isn't working, when we're in pain, when we've exhausted every other resource, that we can run to God. Now, if you don't have little kids around here, you might not realize this, but there's a party that happens at church every single Sunday right over here where our playground is after church. But inevitably, as you get 5, 10, 15, 20 plus kids together playing on the playground, what happens after every single service, every single Sunday, basically? Somebody falls, somebody scrapes a knee, somebody hurts themselves. Now, when I'm standing over there after service talking to people and someone's kid falls on and scrapes themselves and they get up, who do they cry for? Do they go, Pastor Michael? and come? <laughs> of course not. Who do they call? Mom, dad. It's only two people. They don't care if they know you or if you've known them your whole life. They want one of two people. They want mom or they want dad. Why? Because they're hurting, they're desperate, and that's what they need is mom and dad above everything else. 
See, because God is our Abba Father, when we're hurting, when we're desperate, that's who we should run to. We should run to God. We see this modeled for us actually in the prayer life of Jesus himself. And Mark chapter 14 records this prayer, this, this scene from Jesus's life. It's the final days before he's to go to the cross, the final day actually. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 32, it says this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is this incredible scene where Jesus prays just as we are now told to pray because we're part of the family of God, as Jesus does to his Abba Father. It's the most desperate moment of his life. Notice that he sets aside the time, tells his disciples, stay here while I pray, meaning you're praying too, right? Like this isn't just an FYI. This is you all need to be praying while I go and pray. Then he takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, John. He goes away. It says he's greatly distressed and troubled. His, the verbs, the language that he tells these three gentlemen is my soul is sorrowful even to death. Is Jesus desperate? Yes. He's in pain. He's in grief. He knows what it's about to come. So who does he run to? Where does he turn to in his deepest pain and hurt? He runs to his Abba Father. He runs to God because he knows that God will listen. God hears him. God is close to him in his pain. But notice also the incredible trust that he has. That last line, get not what I will, but what you will. Get not what I will, but what you will. See, he goes in desperation to God, but he goes in full trust and confidence in God's plan and in God's will as well. See, where do we turn when we're desperate? Where do we turn when our plan isn't working, when the pain comes our way, when that phone call comes that we weren't expecting, when the diagnosis comes in its worst case scenario, when the job loss comes, whenever the difficulty comes, where do we turn? Because for so many of us, we turn to all sorts of other things rather than turn in our desperate moments to God. For some of us, we turn to a bottle and we start drinking, thinking that's what will fix the problem. For others, we turn to pills to numb away the pain of the moment. For others, we turn to food just to fill ourselves with something else to distract us. For others, we turn to our phones or technology just to kind of get away from it all. For some of us, we turn to work and try and numb ourselves through being busy with things. But where should we turn to in our pain? We should run to God. We should run to our loving father. Just as when a child gets hurt, they run to their parents, so in our pain, we should first and foremost run straight to the arms of God. Now maybe you're here today and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, that, that works. That works for most people who are Christians maybe, but, but I've been gone for a long time. Right, you're like, well, I may, I may be a Christian, but like I haven't lived the normal Christian life. In the last several years of my life, maybe the last several decades of my life, 
church, following Jesus, morality, that's not really been a thing in my life. And it can be easy to say, well, some people can turn to God, but God wouldn't want to hear from me. One of my favorite stories and passages in scripture is a story Jesus tells to convey God's love for us. And it's in the second half of Luke chapter 15. And in the story, there's two sons. The focus for the first part is on the younger son and the father. The father represents God. It says that this youngest son took all of his father's belongings that he could and ran away from God, left home, spent all of his money, all of his time in wild, crazy, and sinful living, doing whatever he could, whatever he wanted for it to bring his heart's desire true, looking for affection, for love, for meaning, for purpose, for pleasure, and anything the world would provide. And it left him empty and helpless and hopeless. And he found himself at his very bottom years later, destitute. And he thought, you know what? If I just go back home, maybe, maybe my father will let me be one of his servants. Because the servants my father has are better off than where I am now. If I just go back, maybe I could be a servant again. And it says he turned and he went back home. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw his son ran to his son, embraced the son, kissed his son, put a robe on his back and a, and a ring on his finger. The ring meant you're fully a son again. Not welcome home, where have you been? How dare you? Now you're a second class citizen, but I have been waiting with anticipation for you just to turn around. And the moment you turn, God is there with open arms to welcome you back. See, it doesn't matter how long you've been away from home. Doesn't matter how far you've wandered, doesn't matter what you've spent your time dabbling in or running from God in. God wants you to come home. And his arms are always wide, they're always welcome for any of his children. It doesn't matter what you've done, God always wants us to come back home. So in our most desperate moments, that's where we should run to. The third significant thing about being adopted in the family of God Thirdly, is now that we're in God's family, we have a new identity in God. A new identity that defines who we are because we are a part of the family of God. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Galatians 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, both of these passages highlight two things. First, that because we are adopted in the family of God, we are now heirs with God. That's why often in scripture, when it talks about adoption, it uses adopted as sons. That's not meant to be like for males and females, you're left out. But in their culture, it was the sons who received an inheritance that went down. And so it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman in the family of God, you are adopted and you are now an heir. Meaning all that God has that he was giving to Jesus is now yours as well because you are a part of the family of God. All the rights, all the privileges that come along with it are true of you and of me because we're part of the family of God. 
But notice too that those passages, both of them also highlight the Spirit's role in our adoption as sons. They highlight the work of the Spirit. Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself, which now lives and indwells and is inside every single believer, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Meaning one of the primary things or one of the main roles that the Spirit is doing in our lives day in and day out is reminding us, hey, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. That is so significant. Why is it so significant that God sent his spirit and one of the spirit's roles is to remind us that we are his children? I think it's two reasons. One, because it's so foundational to how we see the world. And if we truly grasp that we are children of God, it starts to change everything around us. But the second thing is true, that we so often don't live like we're children of God. We don't often view ourselves as children. We start to think of ourselves as other than that. We start to see ourselves in a different light. See, I like to think of it this way. If you're adopted in today's world, you stay the same, but also you're entirely new at the same time. When you're adopted in today's world, your first name stays the same. Who you are, what you look like, your personality, your looks, all those things, they stay the same about you. You're still the same you, but you have a new last name. And you're now part of a new family. And all that is that family is now fully yours. You're still the same you, but you're also a brand new you because you have a new last name and you're in a new family now. So it is when we are part of the family of God, we still remain who we were, our personalities, our characteristics are true, but we're also brand new because of the significance of our new name that we are in the family of God. See, one of the things that I've tried to focus on as a parent with my two little girls is I try and speak the truth over them. I try and give them names that they will understand, not like their literal names, but I try and speak the truth of who they are according to God's word into their life. And I do this over and over and over again, right? So one of the things, there's a few things that I always try and say to my little girls. One that I always try and tell them multiple times a day is that I love them because I want them to know no matter what, Mom and dad love me. No matter what happens, no matter what I do, mom and dad love me. And I'm trying to lay that foundation from the youngest age possible. And so it does, it's not just when my three-year-old obeys me. It's not just when she actually does something nice and doesn't kick her sister but gives her a hug instead. But when she's just out playing and having fun or eating food, I'll sit down and I'll just grab her by the shoulders and look at her and say, hey, I love you. And she's like pushing me away. Like, I wanna go play dad, get away from me, right? But always, hey, I, I love you. Another thing that I always try and tell both of them multiple times a day is how beautiful they are. They, you are beautiful. Because I know she will hear other messages in the world that will tell her otherwise. And I want her to know that she's beautiful. I, I started to, to realize that how often I tell, my, my wife and I both tell our, our daughters this all the time. And I realize how often we say this because now everything in the world for my daughter is beautiful. We're driving down the road a couple days ago. My daughter looks out the, the side. She goes, look at the beautiful trees. Those are beautiful. And she goes, Daddy, look at the beautiful dirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the beautiful dirt. That's where our food comes from, the ground right there. Yeah. But, but so she has this ingrained in her. Why do I spend so much of my energy and focus trying to, to say these things to my kids? It's because I know that there'll be all sorts of other messages that come into their lives over their lives. And when those other voices come in telling them other things, I want them to be reminded of the voice of their father who's spoken something different to them. 
And when other messages come in that maybe tempt them to believe this is true about them, that maybe somewhere in there the voice of her father would sit and they say, no, this, this is who I am. This is who my dad has spoken over me. See, it's so important that we define our lives by not who the world says we are, not by what other people say you are, but by who our Father in heaven says we are. And there's so many competing voices pulling at us trying to define who we are. I came across a video a couple weeks ago that I thought put this so well into words. It's by um, an artist named Hosanna Wong, and it's a spoken word piece about listening to the voice of who the Father says you are. Let's take a look. God spends a lot of time in the Bible telling us who we are. It's almost as if he knew that we would doubt who that was from time to time. It's as if he saw it coming, that we'd spend our whole lives searching for what our identity, what our real name was, and that there'd be many moments in our lives where we'd let different kinds of names define us when we've looked in the mirror, compared ourselves to pictures, and heard the name ugly. When we've been left by loved ones, people we trusted once and heard the name unworthy. When we've been drowning in discouragement, living in a seemingly never-ending crisis and heard the name forgotten. When we've had our hopes up and our hearts open only to be brought down by closed doors and we've heard rejected. When we've looked for infinite affirming love through lesser physical fleshly versions. When we gave it away or when it was stolen and we heard impure, we heard garbage. When we go to other vices to ease our pain and we hear addict, we hear forever broken. When we feel like we're living in the shadow of someone else's calling and we hear second place. When our pain cripples us to a point where we don't even know how to let others in and we hear lonely when our past seems too gross for others to forgive and we hear disgusting, it's overwhelming. These voices we're constantly hearing, it's suffocating. This air of constant critique and comparing and it's sort of amazing the people whose voices I've allowed to name me the power I've given to my past, to my mirror, and to my surroundings, and enabled them to identify me, the amount of years I've spent living up to whatever others say about me. But God says something else about me. It's like he knew there would be other voices. So he wrote his voice down in a timeless book of truths that would remind us over and over again in the moments when lies would block his truths and somehow make us forget. So I'm going back to the source, not the people I've allowed to represent God to me, but the actual, literal, tangible words that he has written down for me. And there's some other names he's given to me. John 15, 15, he calls me friend. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he calls me chosen. Ephesians 2, 10, he calls me his masterpiece. He calls me his art. He calls me handmade. He calls me purposed and fashioned for good things. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he calls my body a temple. He calls it the residence of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, he calls me his messenger to the world. Galatians 3.26, he calls me his child. Romans 5.8, he calls me greatly loved. John 8.36, he calls me free. 
free indeed. 2 Corinthians 5:17. He calls me brand new. And it's amazing how different these names are from the names I'm used to listening to. And in my journey to discover who I really am, in my battle to uncover the truths of myself, I've learned something new about my name. And now this is what I am certain of. My name is not the name the world calls me. My name is not the name my past calls me. My name is not even the name my own mirror calls me. But my name, my name is the name I choose to answer to. And I can choose today from this moment forward to answer to a new name. When I hear lonely, that's not me. When I hear disgusting, that's not me. When I hear unworthy, I don't even look over my shoulder. When I hear broken, they must have confused me. Please look elsewhere. When I hear ugly, abandoned, useless, forgotten, I figure someone just has to remind them. Maybe those were my old names, but they're no longer the names that I respond to. My name is the name I have chosen to spend my days living up to. And if these other voices are not saying, the same thing that the truth is. I look in my mirror and I repeat this. They have no right to be speaking to you. When you stop answering to all your old names, they stop having power over you. The names that my father, eternity's author, the world's creator has called me are the only names that I answer to. So when I hear friend of God, that's my name. Chosen, that's my name. Loved, wanted, created with a purpose, that's my name. God's messenger, that's my name. God's masterpiece, that's my name. Child of God, you must be looking for me. Greatly loved, you must be calling for me. Brand new, that is my name. So that is a name that I will respond to because the enemy has no power here. Perfect love casts out all fear and perfect love has named me and you. So what is your new name? What is stirring up inside of you when you hear these words that his word, that the word has proclaimed? What do you it's not the name you grew up with. Maybe it's not the name your old friends associate you with. Maybe it's not the name that your whole life you were used to identifying with, but it's the name you now answer to. So when the enemy tries to get to you, it's just the name you introduce yourself. As for me, my name is forgiven. My name is free. My name is brand new, loved, wanted, child of God, created with a purpose. And it's been a pleasure to meet you. So whose voice are you listening to? The voice that your past would say is you, that our world would say with you? Are you listening to the voice of who your father, your Abba good father says you are, that you are a child of God? Would you join me in prayer? As we pray this morning, would you simply hold your hands out, palms up like this, just as a physical sign of surrender and give to God those lies that you've believed about yourself. You thought you were unwanted. 
unloved, when you believe that you are insignificant or impure. In that same posture, but now a posture of receiving, receiving from your Father who He says you are, when He calls you chosen, wanted, loved, forgiven, brand new, a child of God. God, we thank you that you have adopted us into your family. And no matter how far or how long we've run away, your arms will always welcome us home. God, would we define ourselves not by the voices of others or even the voice of ourselves, but would we find our identity in the voice of who our Father says we are? That no matter what happens to us, we are your children. We're children because you sent your son to die for us because you loved us so much. We thank you for Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.